Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And thanks to Chris Gaffney for Great Voices. And it's coming up to four o'clock right this second. Today we'll be hearing about Cuba. Dr Tim Anderson has just returned from Cuba and he'll also be talking about Syria. He's a senior lecturer at the University of Sydney and a member of Hands of Syria. Dr Brian Sinwaratna will be speaking about great concerns in Sri Lanka in the north and east for the Tamil people. It's being called structural genocide. And looking at the Pacific, Nick McClellan, journalist and researcher, is focusing today on fishing, overfishing, fishing laws in the Pacific. And finally, Dr. Peter, brother Peter Bray, who's the vice chair, I'll start it that again, brother Peter Bray is the vice chancellor at the Bethlehem University in Palestine and he'll be talking about the challenges and the successes of the students at his university. But first, it's Mr Kevin Healy and I think he's had another one of his weeks. A week, Jane, listener, when, well, rest assured, we'll break into this segment if breaking news comes through that Sweden has discovered the terrorist disaster, terrible, terrible, that the prescient US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, saw in some premonition. And it quite simply must be true, because Donald talked of the terrible atrocities arising from Sweden's refugee policies while attacking the US of media for fake news. So clearly Donald wouldn't commit the same sin, wouldn't create fake news while attacking fake news. So it's just a matter of time before Sweden discovers the terrorist blood and gore. And speaking of politicians, see we've got one more politician turning up this week. Oh no, not another Yahoo. Exactly. He has great respect for Trublawazi. He says Zion and Trublawazi have so much in common, turning the original inhabitants into non-people, which means they weren't the original inhabitants because they are non-people, which means they don't need any land because they are non-people. Uh, but taking more and more of the non-people's non-land must be a barrier to peace or, or to finding a country for the non-country people. And not at all. The barrier to peace is the non-people will not accept Zion taking more and more of their non-people non-land. So they're the barrier to peace and they'll have a big laugh about their respective non-people, terra nullius non-people, and Benjamin will joke that it's a pity True Blue Aussie is an island. Could, couldn't banish the terra nullius lot offshore so they could have more fun taking more and more and running their lives for them. <laughs> well, their non-lives for them. Oh, yes, they'll have plenty to laugh about. 
A few weeks ago, the Fair Work No Longer Work Choices just looks like it conned Mission threw out a non-union agreement on a technicality after an appeal by the Maritime Union, as evil a union as we could find, and now, due to this gross miscarriage of justice, the Minister for Freehills, uh, sorry, Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Michaelia Koshner-Workers, is introducing legislation to ban unions from overturning non-union agreements on technicalities. Little technicalities like workers will be worse off, when we all know agreements reached between caring employers and lazy avaricious workers without the interference of a non-related third party like a union are always win-win. Indeed, often win-win-win-win-win, caring employer Jim Bloated laughed. Macalia, brilliant caring employer lawyer that she is, explained that proper caring business class relations required her to change the law if or whenever caring employers lost a case. This shows our huge respect for the principle of the separation of powers. We must separate sensible judges from non-sensible judges who make this sort of irresponsible ruling on the flimsy excuse, the specious grounds that it's the law. We must protect poor caring employers from this reckless irresponsibility. Still, if it's an anti-worker law, they're going to have to convince Hangham High Senator Darren Lyncham and Nick Xenophobe, whose principled stand involves saying no until he says yes. And gee, it's hard to pick which way those two will go when it comes to bashing workers. Bringing us to this omnibus bill, something about public transport, obviously. Well, sort of, actually. It transports wealth from the undeserving riffraff to the most deserving filthy rich and getting filthy richer. We must slash services, well, abolish services to the most needy. Big economic gurus scuttled them more last time, explained the government's dilemma. Uh, why? Uh, so we can help the most needy. And if the socialists refuse to pass this essential legislation, we will have to, reluctantly have to, increase taxes. What, the, the massive tax cuts for the filthy rich go out the window? Good God, no. We have to increase taxes so we can slash taxes for the filthy rich, uh, which is a win-win situation because the undeserving riffraff who'll pay the increased tax will benefit from the filthy rich paying the slash tax. You mean not paying. Uh, whatever. Real win-win. The trickle-down effect, the drops of yellow liquid. Irrefutable figures produced for me independently by the sundry chambers of profits prove conclusively that if the filthy rich pay no tax, the benefits flow throughout the economy and therefore throughout the community. So our policy is driven solely by our concern for the undeserving riffraff. Any figures from the riffraff themselves, from unions, from welfare groups? Of course not. I, I only act on reliable figures. On one level, the undeserving riffraff will experience a sort of trickle-down effect, the famous drops of yellow liquid. They'll be totally pissed off. Meanwhile, the homeless in New South Wales are whooping it up as the answer to their little accommodation problems is nigh. The government up there has appointed recently retired Reserve Bank big supremo Glenn Stuffins to utilise his years of neoliberal oversighting to advise it on making housing affordable. That should do wonders for the problem. 
no problem apparently with Donald Trump or the poor, because seems all those people around the world we thought were protesting over Donald's ban on seven Muslim countries, which Donald assures, assures us has absolutely nothing to do with anti-Islam, Islamophobia. It's just anti-country, apparently countryophobia. Seems they weren't protesting over the ban at all. For Donald told us he had not received even one comment on the White House comment line about the issue. Not one comment, not one. Very good. Which on one level is not surprising, seeing yet another of Donald's directives designed to protect liberty, freedom and democracy was to close down the comment line. And, he added, there has not been one comment on the closed down comment line about my closing down the comment line. Very good. Very good. Uh, yes, why did you close it down? It posed a threat to democracy. It could be used by dangerous terrorists like so-called judges or those who support so-called judges or women who oppose my support for women who would otherwise suffer abortions or practice contraception or these same-sex unnatural bad people who oppose my ban on condoms. All these people who oppose my anti-country ban, it would be open to so much abuse. Dangerous. Very dangerous. So, so you say you've received no comments, but now say if it were there, you would receive comments. Don't put words in my mouth. I said we have received no comment showing everyone supports what I've done. The greatest support for a president ever. Typical fake news. Very bad. Very evil. Actually, on his nexus between the mainstream media and fake news, we'd have to agree with Donald. This week's winner in the Trample the Poor Consistency Stakes, and there's a big field, Donald, who couldn't praise WikiLeaks highly enough during the campaign as he quoted its leak of details about Hillary's little email problems, now says leaking is evil and criminal and must be severely punished which may be 100% different to his views on the same subject this time next week, if what drips from his mouth could ever be labelled views. On the other hand, the misnomer Democrats who jailed and tortured Chelsea Manning and pursued the banished exiled Julian Assange and Edward Snowden and declared all whistleblowers must be hit with the full force of the law, throw away the key, prepare the lethal chemicals, now say the leaks against Donald are responsible leaks. Good leaks need to be encouraged leaks, which simply shows that with that lot, what goes around comes around. We note those exemplars of community responsibility, the big four banks, have appointed former Socialist Party state big supremo Anna Blur class struggle as their true blue Aussie bankers profits association big supremo. Smart move, given the Socialist Party wants a royal con mission into the banks, which the banks know is absolutely unnecessary and even more so, absolutely a worry. And Anna, like her new employers, knows the banks can sort out any problems themselves in the public interest, of course, without nasty interference. Which leads us to the Spit the Dummy of the Week award, won jointly by the aforementioned big economic guru Scuttlebem Morlashson and his spin doctor, Sasha Grebe. Real name, because no one's heard of him, a male Sasha. After Blur Class Struggle's appointment, next day Scuttlebem cancelled scheduled meetings with the Big Four, obviously afraid of socialist contamination.
and Sasha won't meet with them or Anna either, which must upset her no end, not meeting that lot, but that'll teach them for not appointing a good, sensible non-socialist. Well, apart from the fact they did appoint a good, sensible non-socialist, but just not non-socialist enough for Scuttle Them and Sasha. The Spit the Dummy Award also to acknowledge Sasha's graciousness. He was a failed candidate for the job and has obviously taken it well. So finally, perhaps he should feel worried. Scuttle Them's Cuddle them's dismay at him not getting the job just might indicate he can't wait to get rid of him. Hang on, I'll just check. No, no, Sweden hasn't found that terrorist act yet. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. Join the International Women's Day Rally on Wednesday the 8th of March at 5.30pm starting at Parliament House and finishing at Trades Hall for an after-party. International Women's Day sparked the Russian Revolution 100 years ago and in honour and memory of our sisters then who took strike action over bread, we raised the demand, peace, bread and land. Join us for the IWD Rally on Wednesday, March the 8th at 5.30pm at Parliament House. Contact the women's team at Trades Hall for more details or visit unionwomen.org.au. The IWD Collective, Victoria Trades Hall Council and the Trades Hall Women's Team are 3CR supporters. I've been joined by journalist and researcher Nick McClellan and the issue today is fisheries in the Pacific. And let's begin, Nick, with a, a ship called the Jeanette Diana. What happened? The Jeanette Diana was an American fishing boat that uh, in the mid-1980s was operating in the South Pacific. It strayed into, whether deliberately or not, we don't know, the waters of the Solomon Islands. In those days, Solomon's was a very new independent country. It only gained its independence from Britain in 1978. And so the intrusion of this fishing boat into Solomon's waters caused a stink because the Solomon Islands seized it. And the Solomon Islands said that uh, under the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea, which was first created in the early 1980s, uh, especially with the leadership of Pacific countries like Fiji, countries have the right to, firstly, the territorial waters. Territorial waters extend to about 12 nautical miles offshore from land areas, but also what's called the Exclusive Economic Zone, the EEZ. And that's uh, 200 miles Exclusive Economic Zone, where the host country has responsibility to manage the exploitation of marine resources. And so, you know, these exclusive economic zones are really important for all countries, but particularly for Pacific Island countries. Australia has an enormous exclusive economic zone, but so do many Pacific countries because they're small atolls so with many reefs spread across vast areas. So the island nation of Kiribati which was the British Gilbert and Ellis Islands colony until the late 1970s. Kiribati has 812 square kilometres of land, but 3.5 million square kilometres of exclusive economic zone. So basically drawing a circle 200 miles diameter around uh, every piece of land, every reef, every outcrop. And that's an enormous resource because of the fisheries that you can find and increasingly other resources like seabed minerals. Um, So for the Pacific the liquid continent, 
the law of the sea is really important. And the Jeanette Diana incident uh, in the Solomon Islands really threw out a challenge. Here was one of the poorest and, and newest countries in the world taking on the might of the US empire. And the Americans understandably went feral and uh, launched sanctions against uh, the Solomons, threatened to cut off all financial aid to the new Solomon Islands government. But the Solomons stood up and many other Pacific countries stood with them, recognising with the law of the sea that this was a, a vital resource for the future. It's worth remembering that to this day, the United States has not ratified the law of the sea. Every time you hear debates about the South China Sea and Chinese incursions uh, establishing militarised islands on uh, uh, the waters of the Philippines, for example, China's breaching international law, just remember that the United States, which is sabre-rattling in the South China Sea, has not ratified the law of the sea. I don't believe it applies to them. You know, it's always important in these questions to look at the hypocrisy of the major powers. Why? Well, they believe, quite rightly, that it might constrain uh, their activities, uh, particularly military activities. Yes, but it's a UN thing. Exactly. Under the law of the sea, countries have the right of what's called innocent passage, but uh, there's increasing uh, uh, constraints to say, for example, that carting nuclear weapons around the world is not innocent. There's uh, uh, increasing pressure uh, through the United Nations for treaties to ban nuclear weapons, uh, to look at the launching of, of weapons. And so, for example, the Rarotonga Treaty for a South Pacific nuclear-free zone created by Pacific governments in 1985 bans the firing of missiles from the zone. Thus, American Trident submarines, which patrol through the South Pacific, are not supposed to fire their missiles from the zone. So these... International norms are boundaries around the great powers. As we'll discuss later, they're, they're not always obeyed, but they set uh, regulations. And what came out of the Jeanette Diana incident, therefore, was a treaty, the 1988 treaty between the United States and the Pacific to regulate fisheries. And it uh, was basically a deal allowing the American Persena fleet, these are giant boats that catch tuna, essentially, and other species, were allowed in, and the US would pay royalties. And that deal has lasted for uh, three decades nearly. And uh, in recent years, there's been an ongoing dispute about whether that treaty should be renewed and particularly under what conditions it should be renewed. And how much were they allowed to take? Did that come into it? Yeah, there were catch limits set. One of the features that's grown has been that as Pacific countries have organised regional organisations, the Pacific Islands Forum, which links Australia, New Zealand and the independent island countries of the region, developed what was an organisation specifically for fisheries, surprisingly called the Forum Fisheries Agency. Its headquarters is in the Solomons, you know, uh, symbolic of the, the stand that the Solomons took at that time. And the Forum Fisheries Agency has a dual mandate. One is to regulate fishing within the region, uh, so to try and limit um, the overfishing uh, stocks particularly of tuna, which is a, a crucial economic resource, and also to uh, provide uh, economic opportunities for local fishing fleets. Because Pacific Islanders, by and large, don't have extensive fishing fleets. A couple of countries do, like Fiji and French Polynesia. But most of the fishing done in the Pacific Islands region is done by what they call deep water fishing nations. These are countries like Japan, Malaysia, China, Taiwan, who send out fishing fleets into the South Pacific, into the Central Pacific, seeking the incredible resource that is tuna. About 70% of the world's tuna comes from the Western and Central Pacific. 
Uh, so next time you get into your sushi at a Japanese restaurant, think uh, tuna brought from the Pacific. And because it's such a vital economic resource, one of the key challenges for the Pacific has been to try and regulate fishing by these deep water fishing nations in their areas and also to uh, make sure that the Pacific is not overfished like we've seen in the Mediterranean, in the Indian Ocean and in the Atlantic. One of the great problems is the European fishing fleets have essentially destroyed fisheries in the North Sea. can't buy fresh cod in England anymore. You know, they outfished all of the, the, the North Sea. Um, similarly, in the Atlantic, um, American and European Persanas and other, other fishing fleets have wiped out a lot of fish stocks in the Atlantic. And so the Pacific, with its huge resources of tuna, skipjack, albacore, beautiful uh, uh, other types of tuna, is an amazing resource, and yet it's within the waters of some of the smallest nations in the world. And how successful have they been to make sure that it isn't depleted? Enormously successful, and it is one of the great success stories of Pacific regionalism. 20 years ago, about $2 billion worth of tuna was taken from the Pacific every year. But the Pacific, through royalties, through revenues paid by the deepwater fishing nations, only got about $150 million. Um, So $1.7 billion of revenues was going offshore, um, literally. And the Pacific, for a long time, realised that if they could only double their take to 300 million instead of 150 million still there's plenty of money for the deep water fishing nations to to be involved for commercial operations to make an investment and so on and so one of the the strands of the work through the forum fisheries agency and a later network called the parties to the nauru agreement pna has been to increase the take but secondly a key strand has been to regulate overfishing and illegal fishing and who monitors it One of the things is that Pacific countries don't often have the technology to survey these vast areas, and so they've been reliant on countries like Australia and New Zealand to provide them with the boats uh, necessary for that. Going back to to the 1980s and continuing through the John Howard era, Australia provided patrol boats to Pacific Island countries within the Forum, and these patrol boats, together with a couple of Royal Australian Navy trainers, were involved in going out to uh, patrol areas um, on reefs that were were famous for fishing spots and so on to try and catch illegal fishes. Over time, the technology of this has transformed and now through the FFA, they have incredible satellite monitoring systems and also a system of observers where any deep water fishing nation that wants to fish in the Pacific has to have a forum observer aboard. Oh, it's a pretty tough life going out and, you know, trying to avoid being over, thrown over in a dark storm because your job is to make sure, I'm um, using GPS tracking and satellite systems and so on, that the fishing is going on in international waters and if the boats come into exclusive economic zones controlled by one or other of the Pacific Island countries, then uh, they should be paying royalties for fish they take within those zones. And in the old days, it involved maritime surveillance uh, through patrol boats or through Orion aircraft, uh, trying to literally spot where these things were. Now, with the satellite technology and the observer system, it's incredibly uh, uh, quick, and you can see in real time whether any boat is uh, transiting through a zone and whether it's actually stopping illegally to fish. And I imagine they're very big ships and they're a huge catch. Some of these are enormous. Uh, the Persanas, as they're called, really scoop up tuna and indeed other species um, from uh, uh, the ocean. 
there are line and pole fishing, uh, which is uh, old-fashioned, uh, um, involving a lot of human labour, um, which is a lot more ecologically sustainable. They don't scoop up uh, endangered species of fish or dolphins or, or other areas. But the Persainas are really uh, vast trawls and they gather enormous amounts of tuna. Yet still, um, conditions are tough. Uh, like all commodity prices, the price of fish goes up and down and the price paid to the, the local governments is not what ends up. And thus, as I say, when you're buying sushi, the price is outrageous um, because it's gone through many middlemen uh, before it hits the restaurants. And how do they judge whether it's sustainable to take those huge amounts of fish out of the ocean? One of the things that FFA and the uh, parties to the Nauru Agreement, the PNA, have done is to set up an elaborate uh, scientific network doing a lot of research with uh, support from the UN Food and Agriculture Organisation. There's a lot of work being done to track uh, the spawning and migration of tuna. That's being affected by all sorts of things. For example, global warming. The warming of the oceans is changing the migration pattern of tuna, and that has huge implications. If tuna are moving through international waters or through your exclusive economic zone, it makes a big difference um, in terms of whether you can get revenues or not from the fishing fleets and the danger that... uh, um, some exclusive economic zones will lose most of their tuna as uh, uh, the fish migrate to different temperatures as the ocean warms, has enormous economic implications. Um, similarly, the global warming can damage the reefs through coral bleaching and the loss of reef ecologies is vital for fish spawning and so on. So there's a lot of scientific work being done by SPREP, the Regional Environment Program, the FFA um, and other organisations to try and monitor what's actually happening. But some of it's not scientific. Some of it's just ensuring that uh, people aren't ripping off uh, the fish. Do they have any rogue nations when I'm thinking about whales in Japan with their so-called scientific fishing and killing? There's a lot of uh, pressure from China. And uh, because China has moved into the South China Sea, that's in some ways pushing other countries out. At the moment, there's a big phenomenon for what are called the blue boats. These are Chinese or Vietnamese fishermen sometimes Indonesian, who come out of Southeast Asian waters uh, because of the enormous pressure on resources there and on uh, the the disputes between coast guards in the South China Sea, and people move into the uh, Pacific exclusive economic zones, particularly those in the northern Pacific like Palau, the Federated States of Micronesia, Marshall Islands and so on. I was in uh, Ponape in the Federated States of Micronesia last year and there were a number of... uh, blue boats, as they call them, illegal fishing boats, uh, sitting in the harbour. They've been seized by the uh, FSM with a patrol boat supplied by Australia. They'd imprisoned the fishermen. They weren't actually in jail. They were literally sitting on their boats. The captains had been jailed, but the crew, who were often poor peasant fishermen, uh, farmers, were stuck there. Uh, They didn't have the money to to fly home to Vietnam uh, because they weren't going to be able to sail home. But the FSM government was finding they're having to feed them. Um, so there's a lot of negotiation going on trying to work out who would pay for the cost of uh, this whole operation. And that's a real challenge for these small island states, which are, uh, you know, find it hard enough to look after their own people, let alone uh, dozens of uh, illegal fishermen. Is it known how widespread the illegal fishing is? There's disputes about this. The FFA tries to downplay the amount and says that it's not so much um, illegal fishing as uh, under-reported fishing so that people forget to do the paperwork um, when they come into fishing zones. 
Greenpeace and other environmental organisations, though, say that it's a, a multi-billion dollar problem and that uh, illegal fishing countries uh, deliberately are coming in, uh, fishing fleets are coming in and uh, ripping off uh, tuna quite deliberately. So there's this cat and mouse game between uh, the very small patrol boat force that Pacific Island countries have um, going over literally millions of square kilometres of ocean to try and track down these boats. It's, uh, it's a real challenge, but... It's um, having, having enormous success. The other um, success has been that um, eight countries that have the largest exclusive economic zones came together and signed a treaty in Nauru, and they're now known as PNA, the Parties to the Nauru Agreement. Next month I'm going to, to the Marshall Islands, which is where the PNA headquarters is, and it's an important operation. And PNA has played it tough. They have set what they call a vessel day scheme. And that means that only a certain number of vessels from all the foreign fleets can fish each day. And they set a quota. And countries divided up amongst the PNA members. Countries get a certain quota. And if they don't use their quota, they can sell it to another country. Um, and that way uh, it averages out that the tuna. But it's a, a sustainability measure to stop overfishing by setting a limit. And the Vessel Day Scheme has been a huge success in trying to control foreign fleets. hasn't stopped the long-term environmental ecological problems that are driven by things like global warming. But as a management tool, it's been incredibly successful. And they've jacked up the price. So you have to buy a day. And by limiting the day, the Vessel Day, um, the, the amount of time that you can spend in an exclusive economic zone, price of a day has shot up. And now foreign fishing fleets are having to pay a lot more in royalties and revenues. And so PNA has managed to increase by hundreds of millions of dollars the take for Pacific Island countries. And as I say, it's one of the great success stories of Pacific regionalism. And it's constantly being undercut, attempted to be undercut by uh, the negotiators from countries like Japan and also from New Zealand, which has its own fishing interests in the South Pacific, more so than Australia. Um, which looks a lot to the Indian Ocean. Our tuna fleets are in the Indian Ocean. But New Zealand is very active in the Pacific. It has its own territories, um, places like freely associated states like the Cook Islands, Tokelau, Niue and so on. So the New Zealanders have been pushing against the VDS scheme because it disadvantages them in the Pacific. And it's a real battle where Pacific Island countries have been saying, for decades you bastards have been coming and taking our fish. This is our resource. This is... The stuff in the international waters is the common heritage of humanity. And that's what the law of the sea says. So it can be shared for humanity. But the stuff within exclusive economic zones, under the law of the sea, under international law, can be managed and conserved by the host country. It's a real battleground, and I think we're going to see more of it. You only have to look at the South China Sea, where there are overlapping maritime zones, to see that this ocean's policy is really important. Similarly, when it comes to seabed resources beyond fisheries, the Pacific is an enormous bonanza of deep-sea minerals, oil and gas, and deep-water oil and gas. And you only have to look at the battle between Australia and Timor-Leste, where Australia's been stealing Timor's oil since the 1970s to understand the importance of maritime boundaries in that discussion. Talk more about the impact of global warming on the oceans. You know, we've talked about the economics of revenues and royalties from fisheries, but also 
uh, fish is nutrition for most Pacific countries. Pacific Islanders save some people up in the highlands of Papua New Guinea who love their pigs. Um, fish is a vital resource, not only for economy, but for nutrition. It's a really crucial part of people's daily life. A lot of coastal fishing is done too by smaller fishing boats rather than these deep water fishing per seiners. Um, and so coastal fishing by small fishing fleets is a vital source of employment as well um, by most Pacific countries who've got small local fishing fleets. And when you get down to the micro level, it's often women who go out onto the reef at low tide to gather nutrition, protein from the reef. Everything from mussels and crabs and uh, small fish, uh, pippies and a whole range of things are very much part of rural village life uh, and the diet that people have. So reef fish and uh, low-water fish, uh, low-water shellfish, are a really crucial part of diet for people living on the coast in the Pacific. And that's a real problem because the coastal ecologies are changing, driven by climate change. One of the great features of recent years has been trying to document at what speed the oceans are warming. There's a lot of evidence of ocean warming, basically that carbon dioxide is absorbed into the oceans, and uh, that impacts on the ocean ecology. There's a lot of dispute about how fast and how far that warming is going on, but it's significant. And we've seen in Australia at the Great Barrier Reef uh, over the last year or so enormous episodes of coral bleaching where the algae that makes up the beautiful colours of the coral flees the coral because of the warming. If that happens too often, the coral can die. And we've seen not only episodes of coral bleaching, but more frequent episodes because of the warming of the oceans. And of course it's not just coral around Australia, it's through the Pacific as well. Absolutely, and it's vital therefore for daily nutrition for coastal communities. There's also changes in some places in coastal areas to the pH, to the acidity of the water. And um, there's a lot of research being done on to the damage to shellfish and things. And that's a vital inter part of the interacting ecology of the reef. Um, you lose parts of it. Uh, you lose, uh, you know, the corals. It's a breeding ground for small fish. If small fish aren't there, then big fish can't eat them. You know, it's a, it's a complex ecosystem that interacts. And apart from all the shit we're pumping into the oceans, the plastic that ends up in this giant gyre in the central Pacific, tons and tons of plastic swirls together in the central Pacific over miles. Is this the ocean dumping? The ocean dumping, but stuff that people throw into the ocean, you know, all the plastic bottles and paper bags and rip tops off your beer cans and all sorts of stuff goes through the stormwater into the oceans. And there's a place in the central Pacific over towards Hawaii called the North Pacific Gaia. And it swirls around and the ocean currents bring together a lot of this plastic rubbish and it breaks down some of it into micro pellets and so you can go to this place it's shocking just if you google the pictures it's like a thick soup of tiny plastic pellets that take hundreds of years to to biodegrade and it just swirls around these ocean currents in the central pacific and if we keep doing that to the ocean not surprisingly it's going to do enormous ecological damage and ultimately kill us because fish protein is a central part of people's lives and as there's a lot more debate about controlling cattle because of their uh, greenhouse gas effects on land clearing and so on marine resources are going to be an important part of human diet um, in coming decades so protecting the oceans is a matter of survival and also the fact the impact on the seabirds 
It goes on and on. There's enormous ecological and human impacts. And the Pacific's very well of this, and I think the experience of fighting through the PNA and fighting on climate change, their involvement in the UN Framework Convention that we've talked about many times on this program, has now led to work on oceans policy. Recently, the United Nations adopted what are called SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals. In 2000, they created Millennium Development Goals for 15 years between 2000 and 2015 to try and end poverty. They didn't succeed. You know, but there were important steps forward, but poverty is still with us, as we know. So we've now got another 15 years' worth of Sustainable Development Goals. But Pacific Island small states, and certainly others from the Caribbean, from the Indian Ocean, fought to get a goal about protecting the oceans. And so the MDGs have expanded, and now there is a goal around oceans, seas and fisheries. And it's a major breakthrough. And there will be, over the next 15 years, through the life of the SDGs, three conferences once every five years. These are global conferences to look at protecting the oceans, to look at fisheries, how do we manage our seas, how do we stop the fights that we're seeing over maritime boundaries and so on. And Fiji, together with um, Sweden, is the co-host of the first conference, which will be held in June this year, June 2017, in New York. And it's the first conference on the oceans and fisheries. So, you know, Fiji was central in creating the law of the sea as a newly independent nation in the 1970s. The then Prime Minister, Ratu Sakamasisimara, had incredible foresight and realised that the oceans were going to be vital for the future of his nation. And Fiji put a lot of diplomatic energy into um, helping negotiate the law of the sea. And indeed, Sachinandan, a Fijian, was the first chair of the International Seabed Authority. Today, uh, Fiji's president of the UN General Assembly, Peter Thompson, Fiji's UN ambassador, is the president. The first time a Pacific Island country has ever been president of the General Assembly. They're now going to be hosting this conference on the oceans. And then in November, Fiji's going to be the host of the UN Framework Convention uh, negotiations, the global negotiations that are held each year. The meeting's not going to be in Fiji for logistics reasons. It'll be held in Bonn in Germany. But So you've got Fiji hosting policy on oceans, hosting policy on uh, climate. These discussions uh, are really vital for Pacific Island countries. Australia's role? Here we go again. Malcolm Turnbull wants to build more coal mines, more coal-fired power stations. Once again, we're standing apart from our Pacific neighbours in failing to address the urgency of uh, not only implementing the Paris Agreement, but moving far beyond it to address the impacts of global warming. And it's thanks once again to Nick McClellan, who's a journalist, researcher on the Pacific. I don't think there's too many people know more about the Pacific and its people then our Nick and look forward to hearing him in a month's time after he's been to the Marshall Islands and it's 4.38 here at 3CR in Melbourne. Camp Anarchy is happening again this Labor Day long weekend, March 11th to 13th at the gorgeous bush camp at Camp Eureka in Yarra Junction. Get out of the city camp or stay in cabins, share delicious meals, sing along by the campfire and paddle in the creek. Over the weekend there will be a program of workshops and skill shares. Childcare is provided and costs are kept to a minimum. Anyone interested in anarchist ideas is welcome. To find out more information, go to campanarchy.org. Camp Anarchy is a 3CR supporter. 
Ahoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St. Kilder. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, Ah, ah, ah. That stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3C. The corporate media is silent about Sri Lanka today, unless it's to report on cricket matches. But life for the Tamils in the north and east is dire with claims of structural genocide. Sri Lankan Australian human rights activist Dr Brian Sinwaratna is a tireless advocate for the rights of the Tamils in his homeland. I spoke with him late last week and asked him about the upcoming UN Human Rights Council meeting in March and if he plans to attend. The UN Human Rights Council in Geneva passed a resolution which was watered down, but nonetheless a resolution back in 2015 to have some form of investigation into what has happened the closing stages of the war. This was agreed to by the Sri Lankan government and those in Geneva that there will be local, that is uh, Sri Lankan, as well as international uh, legal people in the investigation. That was what was agreed on. But in reality, when it actually came to it, the Sri Lankan government refused point blank to have any form of international involvement. Moreover, they have now started delaying the report every six months. Um, From 2015, it was delayed to the end of 2015, then to 2016, and then to September 2016, and now to 2017 March. And they are asking for a further extension. Now, I think the hope is that Everyone will get tired of all this, and uh, it will be water under the bridge. The one group, the Tamil Lawyers Forum in Sri Lanka, have written a very strong letter to the United Nations uh, Human Rights Council that no further extension should be given beyond March 2017, and that Sri Lanka be referred to the UN General Assembly with recommendations to refer the UN uh, refer to the UN Security Council to be forwarded to to the International Criminal Court or to create an ad hoc International Criminal Tribunal on Sri Lanka. I don't think any of that not is going to happen, but that is the only sort of pressure that anybody seems to be applying to the UN Human Rights Council. Now, the Sri Lankan government has claimed that There is really no problem now, and that everything is back to normal. To bolster that, they have got former Tamil Tigers brainwashed and ready or made to get ready to fly to Geneva to confirm that all is well. And that is uh, uh, the second issue, which is of concern. There is another quite serious issue, unless you have further questions on this, the previous, the thing I've been just dealing with. I'll get on to that uh, if you haven't. Where are these 
Tamil Tigers coming from? Have they been imprisoned over that time? Yes. I think they still are. And they are being taken to basically a slave labour. And that's the part I'm going to come to. They are in the north and the east, the former conflict area. They are kept there and transported every day to work on military-run farms. They are given special uniforms, and more important than that is that they are being brainwashed to say what the government wants said. It's a serious situation, actually. I've just put this into my book, uh, Sexual Violence of Tamils by the Armed Forces. I've actually added a new paragraph titled, Tamil Slaves Work in Armed Forces Farms. This is the Civil Security Division. The Civil Security Division was set up by the Sri Lankan government uh, some years ago, but it has now been tasked with rehabilitating former members of the Tamil Tigers. In reality, rehabilitation has come to mean recruitment for slave labor in military-run commercial ventures such as military-run farms. They are transported to and from these farms and paid slave wages. They are made to wear black uniforms with the letters CSD, Civil Society Division, written in white on their backs. Basically, they are slaves, and they have to do as they are told with very little uh, pay, if any. They have also been subjected to sexual exploitation by the uh, occupying Sri Lankan military, and also as informants to tell the military of who uh, the Tamil Tigers are, uh, whether any of them are at large or not, and identify them. How have you got this information about what's going on? This is this is this was a problem actually because I had to confirm that uh, this is so. Therefore, although I put it into my book, I stopped the publication thereof until I get confirmation from Sri Lanka and I have from two lawyers, one of whom is a Sinhalese and the other is a Tamil, who actually went up to the Tamil areas and confirmed that this was actually going on. Of concern is that security division is running preschools for Tamils in the north and the east. Now, military uh, are actually uh, entirely singly speaking. And these preschool teachers are employed by the military. They are forced to wear blue uniforms carrying CSD, that is Civil, uh, Civil Security Division, and with a land symbol uh, on their back. They've even experimented with forcing preschool children to wear white shirts with a black CSD on their back. They've recently come under severe criticism from the Northern Provincial Council, the head of which I know quite well, for refusing to hand over these CSD-operated preschools in the North to civil authorities because they are actually being run by the military at the moment. Does that mean that these children are being taught to be, in a sense, Sinhalese? Yes, basically to signalise them to say that the government is looking after them and they've got nothing to worry about. Well, they're certainly not teaching them in the Tamil language. That's for sure. Uh, they can't teach them in the Tamil language because uh, the teachers are military people who speak Sinhalese. 
They may be teaching them in Tamil, but uh, I don't think Tamil is crashed hot. That's why they are recruiting former LTT members and brainwashing them so that uh, they can speak Tamil. And they have to sort of be recruited because they have got no other employment. And the whole thing is really quite scandalous. This is slave labor in 2017, unknown to the rest of the world. But that is something uh, which we have to address. And I'll be writing an article on this saying, look, if you don't believe me, uh, go yourself to the north and the east and see what is going on in the preschools and in the uh, civil security division and as to who is working on the military-run farms, how they are getting their labor. Because the military can't run those farms. They're not capable of doing it. They have to get local people, and the only local people are these ex-Tamil Tigers who are being recruited. Is it a fact that the Sri Lankan Air Force is actually up there on the agricultural lands as well? Oh, very much so. Air Force is less visible than Navy is very visible, uh, running uh, hotels and resorts, uh, but it's the army more than anything else that's running farms and golf courses and cricket stadiums and uh, God knows what, and cafes. Uh, All the numerous cafes in the north and the east are all run by the armed forces. And what has happened to the people that they've turfed off this land? They They are sitting there with no employment, no future, no nothing, They are non-people. They are just hanging around, literally hanging around. They have got no one to complain to. They are members of parliament, uh, at least the leaders of their parliamentarians, are all part and parcel of the government. Last time we spoke, you said that human rights groups are now allowed into the north and the east. Are they still there? Absolutely. They are are allowed in, but... uh, they can't move around because the army comes with them. The people are just too frightened. In fact, one of the big problems is the fact that they are allowed, particularly the Tamil expatriate Tamils, go to and visit the Tamil areas and come back and say, you know, all is well. Uh, I met a couple of these people and I asked, what do you mean by all is well? He said, well, I mean, they're all happy, smiling faces. I said, never mind about their happy, smiling faces, but have you actually spoken with them? He said, well, yes. I said, when you say yes, what do you mean? You mean your relatives? He said, yes, but who else do we have to speak with? I said, the ordinary people. And have you spoken to them without contact with the armed forces? He said, you haven't, because you can't, because they follow you wherever you go. That's where the problem is. Are you planning to go to the UN in March? In March, I was going to Geneva and to New York in December. But the December meeting has been put forward to May. So I was, I'm supposed to go in May to New York. But in March, I was supposed to go to Geneva. But the Geneva trip is off because I've got medical problems of my own and I don't think I'll be fit enough to go there. What's the meeting in May? The meeting in May is the transnational government of Tamililam, the TGTE, which is the sort of de facto government outside Sri Lanka, of uh, which I'm a member, we are trying to work out what is the future of the Tamil people. Actually, I don't have an answer. The future of the Tamil people is uh, to be made non-people. 
uh, I think the Tamils in the north and the east have already become non-people. Uh, more seriously, they are not even going to be a majority because thousands of Sinhalese families, in particular former army and uh, air force and navy people, are being settled in the Tamil areas in an attempt to Sinhalese, a new word, uh, the Tamil areas. In other words, make the Sinhalese a majority even in the area in which they are uh, the minority. Are people still leaving? Oh, yes. Uh, you see, the same human rights violations are going on. Rape is going on, abductions are going on, disappearances are going on, and although Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch are allowed in, they, we need a presence there, and that you don't have. There is no presence so that Let's say a Tamil woman is raped. What does she do? She goes to the police station. She stands a jolly good chance of being raped again by going to the police station because the police are all singlies. And, you know, once with that sort of thing going on and the armed forces, for every five civilians, there's one member of the armed forces. With that, that's a ratio not seen in any other country. People are going to escape. I mean... Uh, particularly the, the youth, the, the older people, they may not have the facilities to go, but the younger people, and if possible the older people, are getting into, are contacting people smugglers. They say people smugglers are the problem. People smugglers are there because they are needed to get people out of an area where they are being persecuted. Of course, they are coming to Australia, but the Australian government will not tell us how many are coming? Because that's all now secretive. And they're going to uh, the UK and uh, Canada. It's no. actually a very bad outlook because I think it is a wiping out of the Tamils in the north and the east, effectively, which is, by definition, genocide. As you mentioned the word genocide, you know, people say, oh, you can't use that word. Well, the Nazi Germany did not have... They didn't take out copyright on the use of that word. Genocide, as defined in the Genocide Convention, is what is going on in Sri Lanka, which is the wiping out of a section of population who are different ethnically, religious, linguistic, etc. And that's going on, without question. Is there any hope for the new UN Secretary General to yes. address this? Yes, I, I hope so. Uh, the new UN, in fact, it's interesting that you should ask this, because in my book, the last chapter has been on the damage that the previous UN Secretary General, Ban Ki-moon, has done, not only in the world, but in Sri, Sri Lanka in particular. New Secretary General is from Portugal, and I think that he is going to be certainly better, more certainly better than Ban Ki-moon, uh, but whether he will be able to do what he wants to do is a different story. But he's certainly going to be a lot better than Ban Ki-moon. No question about that. I think that senators and uh, MPs from this country should go to the Tamil areas and take their own interpreters with them and tell the army, no, don't worry, we've got our own interpreters, we don't want you here. And then talk to the ordinary people and see uh, what are the push factors? And then they will realize that the push factors is because the violation of human rights is going on big time. 
And that's Dr. Brian Sinoretna speaking to me from Brisbane about the situation in the north and east of Sri Lanka, which is being ignored by many in our society today. Yarra City Council is celebrating International Women's Day on the 8th of March with a week of community events and activities to highlight and recognise the achievements of women. Two key events are the presentation of the Inspirational Women of Yarra Award, Morning Tea and Award Ceremony and Yarra's International Women's Day Business Luncheon. The Council is also hosting a range of exciting activities including women's panel discussions, art and photographic exhibitions, sombra and yoga classes, women's only swim session and mums and bubs story time. Check out yarracity.vic.gov.au or phone 9205555 for more information. City of Yarra is a 3CR supporter. Next on Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio 3CR is Dr Tim Anderson, lecturer in political economy at Sydney University and member of Hands Off Syria. When was the last time you went to Cuba? About two and a half years ago in 2014. What changes did you see this time? Well, I always look for the changes because I go about every two years for the last 16 or 17 years. So there's always little changes, but of course in the last six years there's been quite a lot of economic reforms and the most visible one is the expansion of very small business, um, mainly through things like restaurants and, and small businesses that are quite visible and changed quite a few things. They haven't really changed the economic power in the country, but they've changed a lot of the services, access to food and things like that. What sort of rights do the small businesses have to carry out their businesses? So it's interesting because the economy's been very regulated in Cuba, and it still is, but what it means is that small businesses, there's two categories really. There's one that you might call micro-business where people are they're self-employed basically and then there's other there are small businesses that hire some small quantities of labor as in a restaurant for example or in farming the situation there with people who are in what you call the informal sector somewhere else is that the difference in Cuba is they've got social security so they've introduced a system of taxation which didn't really exist before it's like a social security taxation and it means that all of those self-employed and small employees have got coverage in social security that means pension as well as of course health and education so it's different to the informal sector or self-employed elsewhere. Do they have a lot of manufacturing in Cuba? There is quite a lot of manufacturing in Cuba that's pretty much all has has been all by the state or through joint ventures for example they've started a computer manufacturing they're making laptops now in a joint venture with the Chinese but there's always been a lot of small business of varying degrees of efficiency because they were blockaded by the US so they haven't got access to a lot of things so a large amount of manufacturing was really encouraged by that blockade but in recent time in the light engineering area in particular there's been an expansion of uh, joint ventures basically with foreign capital and and the state. What about medical technology? Yeah well that's one of their specialties of course. Um, Their biggest foreign currency earner by a long way is health services and that means well in services generally it's also education services um, but for example their higher education sector also their educators overseas but in particular their doctors overseas so they've got still got very big operations in Venezuela in Brazil in a number of other countries where the doctors are 
working on a contract basically so in technology they have got a biomedicine pharmaceutical technology there with a number of unique medicines the exports of those are starting to mount up because uh, because Cuba's invested such a lot in its science and in its health science in particular pharmaceutical and biomedicine industry has grown on the top of that so you do have a degree of um, Sort of initially it's covering the, the local needs in terms of medicines and so on, and there's a generics industry, but they're also unique medicines, and they're beginning to export them. What about food security and changes in the food that's available? Yeah, that's been a, a big issue for them because Cuba was one of the most modernist agricultural systems, modernist in the sense that they abandoned the idea of food security and went all out for export-oriented agriculture in sugar and tobacco and citruses and so on when they had that trade agreement with the Soviet Union or the Soviet bloc. When that fell apart, the industry, the, the sugar industry really was almost literally decimated. There's still a sugar industry in Cuba because they produce sugar, they produce rum, they produce the sugar cane also goes into a number of the medicines that they have and there, but Basically, there was a big shift in the 90s out of necessity, really, for local food production, including urban food production. And they're still a fair way away from that in the sense that they're trying to get rid of a big import food bill, which has ranged between 2 and $3 billion, slowly coming down, I believe. And that's one reason why they did some initiatives, including labour hire, radical initiatives in, for them, including labour hire in, in the farming sector. They've got some new things in recent times for example there's a cheese industry now there's a dairy and cheese industry within cuba in the past that was pretty much all imported but they're still working on this the plan to actually reduce their food import bill and be much more self-sufficient is urban agriculture still noticeable yeah urban agriculture is still noticeable it's still there um there's a range of different sources for the food in the cities for example in havana you've got growers markets you've got state markets still, but less of them. You've got cooperative markets. They've actually re-regulated the prices on some of those markets because they really did a a, a step back to re-regulating prices and not totally abandoning price controls because people's salaries weren't keeping up with it, basically. So what you've got now around Havana, for example, is a series of small markets, basically, um, run by individuals that have a pretty good range of fruit and vegetables at affordable prices, basically. So they're privately run, but with price controls. There are still state ones. As I said, there are, there are some they call market of, of free commerce, which have less controls and have a bigger variety, basically. Looking at complementary medicines, years ago I remember people talking about the growing of the plants was very important for natural medicines in Cuba. Is that still happening? begins with a, it's a fairly Western health system or, or medical training system at its base, but it incorporates much more than others, let's say um, elements of uh, Asian medicine, Chinese medicine, acupuncture and so on, and herbal medicine. There's a fair degree of integration, if that's what you mean, of, of herbal medicine and other types of medicine on your standard Western medicine model. The death of Fidel, it wasn't unexpected but I'm quite sure it was still a shock to the people you were there what a month two months after his death what was it like of course most people in Cuba have grown up with Fidel there most people have been born after the revolution in 1959 and have grown up with Fidel so it's like 
their grandfather and an extraordinary personality. I mean, people in Cuba are, are aware of it more than anyone else, that the extraordinary historical role that Fidel played. And so there's still a great deal of sadness about it. But as you say, it's not unexpected for a person who's 90 years old, basically, and had been sick for, quite sick for, uh, for 10 years. There's a beautiful song that they wrote, which they're still playing there by a Cuban, Raul Torres, about Fidel with a lot of historical allusions to his role and links to the earlier liberators of, of the country. So his presence is still there. I mean, the first two days I was there, there was a university student rally, the night of the tortures, it's called. It's really in memory of Jose Marti, where the students are marching down some of the main streets through the night with these torches. And they were all chanting, Yo soy Fidel, I'm, I'm Fidel. The next day, the school students were paying homage to Jose Marti. Jose Marti is the 19th century liberation hero who was really the main inspiration for Fidel Castro's thought. So the, the, the school children, um, including primary school children, were chanting this, Yo soy Fidel, I'm Fidel too. So there's a very strong sense of continuity. Indeed, I, I remember being in Venezuela after Chavez had died and feeling a, a terrible loss. I mean, Chavez died much younger than Fidel, but in Cuba, in many respects, there's a sense that things haven't really, haven't really changed with the passing of Fidel. You know, that things are, of course, there are changes going on, but in the sense of Fidel leaving, well, he, he hadn't been on the, on the TV for a number of years, but there's still a sense that things are very, there's a very smooth transition after his death. And no monuments to him to be built? He specifically does not want monuments. You can't really say that's part of Cuban culture because there are monuments to Jose Marti all around the place and a few to Shea and so on, but Fidel had specifically said he doesn't want monuments, even, not even T-shirts. You can get Fidel T-shirts in other countries, but not in, not in Cuba. What about Rael? He's not going to be there for that much longer, is he? He's going to hand over power? That's right. Raul is um, now himself 84, 85, and uh, he's announced that he's not running for another term. So I think the, the next parliamentary elections, you know, Cuba's is basically a, a parliamentary system. They call it a president, but it's really a prime minister. But, um, so he won't be running in the next National Assembly elections, which are, I think, in perhaps next year. There are some younger ministers. There's a very large number of women in the parliament there. But there's that older generation is all really moving on now, if, if they haven't already moved on, they will be in the next uh, National Assembly election. So there's a senior vice president, a man who's in his 50s, so there is a, there is a sort of a second generation there. But they wouldn't be well known outside Cuba in the way that Fidel and, and Raul were. But Raul himself, of course, is a very different personality to Fidel, a very quiet man in many respects. I mean, some, a lot of people, a lot of Cubans say to me that they really feel, felt the loss of Fidel 10 years ago when Raul took over because Fidel was in the media on, on television almost every day as a great moral force, you know, encouraging people and so on. And Raul is a great absence in that sort of sense. They, they may respect him as an administrator, as an army, they call him the army general, but he, he certainly has had a very different style to Fidel. Where are women in the ladder to get to the top in Cuba? They're not big at a ministerial level, there's a number of them, but at a parliamentary level there's a very large number, there's something like about 40% in the parliament these days, including young women, including the, the woman who was leading the march, I mentioned the University Students March, the Federation of University Students Secretary, she's a parliamentarian, so there, are, there is a generation, another, let's say a third generation coming through there, but like I say, the, 
there's much more progress at the parliamentary level than there is at the ministerial level, let's say. Just stay with the students for a moment. What about the overseas students that are coming from many developing countries to study medicine in Cuba? Is that still yeah, viable? That, that's still huge, yeah. It's, it's very big. Of course, there isn't really an economic model the way they do things. That is to say that countries with the capacity to pay are now increasingly asked to do so. But the students themselves um, go there on a scholarship. So mainly you've got a lot of Latin Americans. You know, there's always a lot of Latin Americans, including on that march. I mentioned a lot of you know, Chileans and others that are, that are still studying medicine there and some from wealthier countries who are paying for it now too. There has been, and, and really there's a, there's a culture of this. There isn't like just a handful of universities. There's a big network of, of colleges, and in particular medical colleges across the country. A number of Asian students, there are quite a lot of Chinese students these days that have come to learn medicine, but also Spanish, you know, so there's a... And a lot of Africans. I mean, I went to a conference. Um, the, the, the African presence in Cuba is, is very, very strong, but the Latin Americans are the, are the major, major presence among students. And they're still sponsoring Afro-Americans from the United States? Yeah, it wasn't just Afro-Americans. It was people from disadvantaged areas, but a lot of them were... Afro-Americans from, from North America, those guys have to pay their way these days, basically, because it's not through the US government, then they have to pay their way individually. But it's a lot cheaper than, say, studying medicine in the US. When it comes to developing countries which have some money, basically their government is expected to buy the places and then give the scholarships to the students. But people from wealthy countries, including you know this country, uh, if someone wanted to go and study it, they could do it, but they'd have to pay... The fee, it wouldn't be as high as the fee that we charge foreign students in Australia, but there's no more free scholarships for people from wealthy countries. What did you find out about the way Cuba is tackling climate change? Mainly in their energy, I suppose, but also in their environmental protection. Cuba's made some pretty strong advances in environmental protection. It's got something like between 25 and 30% of protected areas now in the country. A lot of that was naturally uncultivated and wetlands and so on. So they made some advances in environmental protection that way and and a lot of that links into coastal protection too. In terms of energy, they have some degree of wind wind energy and a bigger degree of solar energy development, but um, they're still, of course, trying to exploit some of their petroleum resources off the north coast in particular through sort of a technology which is trying to protect a sensitive area by not perforating the oil source from the water, having an oil rig on the water because they're very vulnerable in the Caribbean with, with hurricanes, but perforating from the shore and then going laterally into the... So they take, they're doing that slowly. They're taking a long time to do that. So there's a mixture of things going on there. Uh, they're not neglecting uh, oil development, but they, they have been uh, making moves into wind and, and solar for some time now. Tourism, how big is it now? Tourism's big and it's growing strongly. Obviously, the notable thing has been an expansion of US tourism, although because the US laws haven't changed, none of them actually can come to Cuba as tourists from the point of view of US, the US system. They have to be educational journalism or something like that. So they have to invent all these pretexts to get around US laws. But at the same time, and so the US tourism has grown, but it's really, it's not massive yet because it's a bit like maybe 150,000 a year, something like that, which is about the same as England or 
Spain or Italy or France, you know, so they're, they're, all those countries are about the same as the US. Canada, on the other hand, is over a million per year, so the Canadians have really developed a very strong culture of it. What's changed, though, with the US tourism is that there's a lot of direct flights from the US now. I think there's about 20 or more than 20 airlines direct flights into different parts of Cuba. Cuba's got at least half a dozen international airports. And people are coming in directly from the US, and not just US citizens, but other people coming through the US too. So that's changed, and the airports had to expand to deal, to deal with that. So there's pressure on the facilities, of course, because in Havana in particular, and I imagine in some of the big resort areas like, like Faradero, some people just go to Cuba to, to be in the Caribbean on a beach. That's it. They don't really go for the, you know, the solidarity or historical tourism. But the prices of hotels has gone up quite a bit more than doubled in many many cases but there's still a lot of private options staying in private houses and renting small apartments and so on that's gone up too but it's not as extreme as, as the hotel prices they're building hotels but that uh, it's something in the order of 15 or 20 percent increase per year it's a very strong increase is there any dissension in cuba to the money being spent on tourism that could be spent on the the people in other ways well there might be because of course i mean those tourist operations are precisely to make foreign exchange and, and create jobs in, in Cuba. You don't see any particular resentment about it, but the, you have to say that, and, and what they said in the past about Cubans being some sort of apartheid for tourism, that's all wrong. But it, it is true that, for example, if a Cuban goes into a five-star hotel to use the Wi-Fi in there, then they'll get a little bit a little bit of interrogated at the door, more or less, why don't you do it outside or something like that. Whereas as a foreigner, you can sort of swine to a five-star and use their facilities a bit more easily. I think that happens pretty much everywhere. One thing that's changed that a little bit too is the fact that there's now a lot of public spaces for Wi-Fi, like squares along the waterfront. A lot of the public squares, you now see dozens and dozens of people, hundreds of people with their faces in the screens these days because there's open Wi-Fi system. It's not free because they've got to buy a card to access it, but it is an open Wi-Fi system run by a single company throughout the country, which is expanding fairly strongly now. So, no, there's not really resentment at tourism. There's a lot of, uh, of course, um, hustlers and, and industries built around tourism. Mainly tourism is seen as, a, as an opportunity for, for a lot of Cubans. Prostitution was seen as a problem, though? Yeah. That was one of the, prostitution was one of the reasons why they didn't want to introduce, go back to tourism. But they made that decision in the, in the mid-90s after a lot of debate that they had to fill the gap left by the collapse of the sugar industry. So, so tourism was introduced as a, a necessary evil, not just prostitution, that it would affect that. And I think the pressure is off that a little bit because there are a lot of other businesses that people can do to get income uh, now that the now that the small business sector has gone from say 60 or 70,000 to half a million in other words there's small scale accumulation and some people have got you know two apartments and a restaurant or something like that so there are there is significant minority in Cuba now who've got some significant money i'm talking you know tens of thousands of dollars that they're earning I, i'm just guessing but I, I suspect the pressure is off that a little bit although of course the people who were the young women who are mainly in tourism were pretty young in the past. So the other thing about tourism that made the Cubans reluctant was to go into it in the first place was that it creates a, a dual economy and an inflation, you know, and if this isn't managed properly, and the Cubans, of course, can manage it better than most, you get a real big impact on the whole population with inflated prices and so on. You see it if you go to Vanuatu, for example, where 
successful, in inverted commas, tourist industry means that prices have gone up and people have just squeezed out of their own economy. Whereas in Cuba, partly through the dual currency system, but also through a system which still, in some areas, has different prices for locals to foreigners, is sort of protecting a lot of locals from what would otherwise be a big inflationary impact of tourism. Do the people in Cuba express concerns about Trump's presidency in the United States? Yeah, because, of course, they appreciated uh, whatever else Obama was doing elsewhere in the world. They appreciated the the opening that he was doing. It was very similar to what Jimmy Carter did in the late 70s, by the way, and, of course, everyone's aware that that got reversed in the 80s and 90s. But some of those openings are important, and now... It's of course, Obama didn't change the law. Congress didn't change any of those laws which were created, particularly in the 1990s, to block commerce with, with Cuba. And so uh, with Trump um, coming to power and with a, a fairly unclear approach to things, a lot of things are hanging, still hanging in the air. You know, there's a lot of consequences of these laws that were passed in the Clinton years by Republican-controlled Congress that says, for example, that ships going to Cuba are quarantined from coming into the U.S. for six months. Third parties like company, European companies or Asian companies that have more than 10% U.S. shareholdings are banned from doing business and can be fined and have been fined many, many millions of dollars for doing business with Cuba. So most of that is still there, uh, even though there have been some openings and, uh, you know, students are coming back, cruise ships are coming back and so on. But there's a lack of clarity now because the Trump administration hasn't really made clear exactly which direction it's going with Cuba and, and maybe a lot of those things will, will keep hanging. Is there anything else you'd like to add about Cuba? And no, just to say that, uh, you know, Cuba's still there. It's still Cuba. There haven't been dramatic changes. One thing perhaps people don't seem to understand is that the Obama visit in 2014 was really the result of political changes in the Americas where Cuba had got the presidency of the, the community of Latin American Caribbean states, the biggest group in the Americas there. And uh, Obama, as, as a result of that, in many respects, said that um, it was the US, he admitted that the U.S. was isolated, not Cuba, as had been their plan. Uh, a lot of people collapsed that with the economic reforms, but the economic reforms begun under Fidel and particularly with Raul since 2010 really had nothing to do with that. I think there is some confusion that somehow the Obama visit meant that or, or is strongly linked to the, the economic change process, but it isn't really. It, it, was, it was a fairly separate type of thing. I'm speaking with Dr Tim Anderson, who's just back from Cuba, but let's move on to the Middle East. The Middle East, Tim, in particular Syria, the corporate media has been relatively quiet for the past month or so. In your view, is this because the Syrian people have finally overcoming the attempt to oust their government, or is it more than that? It's a little bit premature to say that they've they've overcome that because there's still a lot of fighting going on in Syria. I think that there was that massive hysteria about Aleppo that you still see now that the Western media was saying that the fall of Aleppo, the fall of Al-Qaeda held part of this big city, um, whereas Syria and its friends are all saying, you know, rejoicing in the liberation of Aleppo. You still see that, that difference there. But after that media hysteria, I think it's true, things on the Western media are probably quieter. And the new political arrangements, or let's say the, the talks between Russia, Turkey, Russia and Turkey to start with, which were instrumental in helping evacuate Aleppo or eastern Aleppo of um, 
thousands of um, al-Qaeda terrorists, but also tens of thousands of civilians. That practical relationship is rather new. In, in the final months of the Obama administration, it meant that the US really had no, was left out in that it had no role for the first time in the six years of this war. There was no direct US presence in their demand, making political demands. Now that's moved on to the Astana talks, you know, the capital of Kazakhstan, where Iran has been drawn in particular, and some of the armed groups have sent the representatives there. So the Astana talks took over from what was the, the previous Geneva process, and um, really there's not a very clear outcome there, but just suffice to say that in Syria itself, there is this slow but steady progress by the Syrian army in containing and pushing back in al-Qaeda areas, but particularly since the liberation of Aleppo in the ISIS areas. Uh, in the last few weeks, there's been a lot of military activity in the eastern part of Syria, which they'd, they'd really left that to a fair degree because most of the... It's a desert area, and most of the populated centres are in the western part of Syria, so all the, all the fighting, all of the, the Syrian army's focus was on, on those western cities. With the liberation of Aleppo now, there's a lot more activity in the east... Um, um, attempting to retake Palmyra um, in Derizur. And Derizur in particular has been a focus of, of a lot of fighting in the, la in the last few weeks. But the people in Damascus, in Homs, in, on the coast, in Aleppo and so on, things have, have changed significantly there. I don't understand the policy of allowing fighters to leave these areas, these men that have caused horrific injuries and deaths to people in that they're allowed to move with their families to the east. and Surely they're just going to cause more problems. Yes, it was not so much with ISIS as with the al-Nusra-linked groups who were expelled from different parts of western Syria into Idlib, the, northern, the northernmost province next to Turkey. And that was really because, you remember, the diplomatic process was the US was insisting there were moderate rebels, although it couldn't distinguish them from the al-Qaeda groups and so on. And... To some extent, the compromise process was to push all these people into Idlib where there are now, there are thousands, probably tens of thousands of members of armed groups in Idlib now, many of whom have been engaged in huge internal fighting. Indeed, more than 2,000 have been killed in that internal fighting in, in the last couple of months. But it's been a temporary sort of process of herding them up into the northern area there, influenced by the fact that Russia in particular is trying to, still trying to do this diplomatic manoeuvre with the US, um, which Syria and Iran are much colder on, it should be said, I suppose. Iran in particular, for example, doesn't see any constructive role for the US in the entire region. They just want them out. The Russians, on the other hand, because they're trying to contain the eastward push of NATO and trying to massage the whole process with the US trying to exclude them from having good relationships with Europe, the Russians have got a more complex diplomatic relationship with the US. So the herding of, of, of those people into Idlib province in particular is partly a result of that. But also there's a policy of Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian president of reconciliation, which was that despite all of the Western propaganda, you'll notice that there was never really, even after six years of war and at least four or five years of occupation of some areas by the armed groups, there was never a carpet bombing of those areas. It simply didn't happen. Even though a lot of Syrians would have wanted it, the idea of you know going in and, and um, carpet bombing uh, Douma in northeast rural Damascus, for example, or eastern Aleppo, was something that Assad didn't go into because he had this 
a mind to the reconciliation policy, it's called Masalaha Reconciliation, where over several years now, since 2012, uh, they have been indeed, as, as you say, pardoning people who've been involved with the armed groups, so long as they haven't been implicated in, in killings themselves or, or serious crimes themselves. There are many, many thousands, well over 10,000, could be, could be as many as 20,000 who've been, uh, the, the expression in Syria is, have their legal position settled. In other words, there's a type of amnesty. So that's been going on since 2012. It's still going on now. It's still the policy of the Syrian government. And that, combined with the Russian diplomatic process, is what led to the situation that you mentioned. But it is a difficult situation, because where are all these armed groups going to do, having been involved in head chopping and all sorts of things in Syria? Are they going to go into Turkey? Are they going to go into Europe? Um, this is all very unclear and all very up in the air. So far as ISIS and al-Nusra are concerned, and a couple of others like Jund al-Aqsa, which has just moved from it, moving from Idlib to the east to join ISIS, all sort of musical chairs of the al-Qaeda groups, a lot of them are banned terrorist groups. And so even with those people, most of them from East Aleppo, for example, were members of banned terrorist groups, banned by the United Nations Security Council, for example, which says there's going to be no ceasefire with these groups. That's very much up in the air. What's going to happen to all of those armed groups? Who's going to take them? You know, are the people that funded them and armed them to send them into Syria, are they going to take them? I suspect, I fear that they're going to be driven out. And unfortunately, I think the Turkish people are going to suffer quite a, quite a deal from this and probably the Europeans too, because they'll be looking for revenge and uh, why they're fighting each other now is because they're accusing different groups of betraying their, their so-called revolution. And Erdogan in Turkey, pretty Erdogan, unhappy? Erdogan, there's already been... Well, Erdogan, the Russians have been trying to woo Erdogan over because the Russians do indeed have a good economic, strategic... Well, not so much good as an economic and strategic relationship there, but it seems as though he hasn't really changed his spots very much except to the extent that you have to admit that helping with the evacuation of East Aleppo meant a, a type of recognition of the failure of that process, the, the failure to hang on to that city. And that was important for uh, Erdogan's pretensions to you know, dominate um, at least the northern part of, of Syria, the expulsion of those groups that Turkey with the Saudis had armed and funded for so long that that, that recognition of failure of, of, of getting those groups out now. Some of them are now going to join ISIS, What's going to happen in Idlib is yet to be seen, but that's also the subject of the Astana talks. Just finally, Tim, the propaganda war against Syria continues, and there's been a couple of recent reports, one from Human Rights Watch and one from Amnesty International. The Amnesty International one is pretty serious, isn't it? Uh, which one's that, the one the, about execution? Yes. The thing about Amnesty International is they really have been so captured by the US State Department. I mean... The strongest sign of the most obvious sign of that was about five years ago when one of Hillary Clinton's staffers became head of Amnesty US and just moved the Hillary Clinton politics straight into Amnesty US. And the, the first sign of that was praising NATO's occupation of Afghanistan after 10 years of military occupation of Afghanistan. So at the level of countries that are faced with US aggression around the world, and I mean, thinking of a number of Latin American countries at the moment too, they just don't take that group seriously anymore. It began as an independent group, a letter-writing group. I was involved in it in the 1960s, you know, writing for prisoners of conscience and supposedly non-political, but it's been thoroughly politicised and has made a number of uh, interventions that have been just 
horrendous backing up the war propaganda against in the first Gulf War and um, in Afghanistan, you know, the rights of women pretext and Libya, spreading the lies about Libya then admitting that they were false and so on. Human Rights Watch is a little bit different because Human Rights Watch was set up in Washington specifically as Helsinki Watch to to raise propaganda, human rights propaganda against the old Soviet Union. So uh, Human Rights Watch has always been embedded with particularly Democrat administrations in Washington, but Amnesty has been thoroughly co-opted through this war and it's really disgraceful really, to see what's happened with, with Amnesty. For example, the report on executions in, in supposedly in Sadnaya prison was, it came from some other US funded groups that are funded directly by the US government, which is a participant in this war, of course, because it's the mastermind of all of the, all of the financing and arming of the terrorist groups. Also, they did some interviews in Turkey with some fighters up there. That's where all the information came from. They never went to Syria. They wouldn't go to Syria. The Syrians wouldn't let them in either. So they talk as though they have some moral authority, but really it's disappeared. And uh, Human Rights Watch the same in, in Latin America. Um, you know, it's actually... The, um, those, a number of those US-funded groups are banned in Latin American countries like Bolivia and Venezuela and Cuba these days. OK, thanks, Tim. Thanks, Jan. And, of course, that was Dr Tim Anderson, Senior Lecturer in Political Economy at Sydney University and also a member of Hands Off Syria. It's 28 and a half minutes past five o'clock. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. Students moving to university face many challenges, but for students at Bethlehem University in Palestinian West Bank, these are multiplied. Not only for the students, but also for the staff. Brother Peter Bray is the Vice-Chancellor of what was the first university established in the West Bank of Palestine in 1973, the only Catholic university in the Holy Land a university with a unique and cultural mission as an oasis of peace and a beacon of hope which provides quality higher education to prepare students to create the future of Palestine. I asked Peter first about the decision to take up the position in Bethlehem. Like most things in Palestine, it's a little complicated. There are two aspects to it. Firstly, to talk about Bethlehem University, We're a joint venture with the Vatican, between the Vatican, the Congregation for the Oriental Churches, and the De La Salle Brothers. And the prefect of the congregation, currently uh, Cardinal Sandri, and our superior general, uh, currently Brother Bob Sheila, jointly appoint the vice-chancellor. In 2006, they appointed Brother Dan Casey from New York, and he went there, and unfortunately in 2007, he was diagnosed with cancer, and right through 2007, he was getting treatment. And then at the beginning of 2008, he went back to uh, the United States on the basis that he'd get treatment there and then return. But when he got back there, they found it was terminal. So he never, ever went back. So our general counsel in Rome was faced with finding a new uh, vice chancellor. So we just parked that. I graduated from the University of San Diego with a doctorate in uh, leadership and from 1998 to 2012, I taught in a 
summer program in the United States, in Chicago, Philadelphia, and San Francisco. And back in the early 2000s, Brother Robert Sheila uh, was the person who organized it, and he sat in on my uh, workshops. Subsequently, he was elected into the General Council in Rome, so that when the council was confronted with finding a new vice-chancellor, he had this strange idea that because I could talk about leadership, I might be able to do something. And so in May of 2008, I was invited to consider taking up that position. I'd been at the Wellington Catholic Education Centre for 11 years at that stage, and uh, it just seemed like a good idea at the time. A very different position to the previous uh, one. Anything I, I've ever had before, and I've said to numerous people that it's by far the most difficult position I've ever had in terms of the complexity of the situation that we're involved in, the unpredictability of, the, of what might happen at the university in Bethlehem in Palestine, and then the significant restrictions under which we're working uh, because of the Israeli military. So that makes it by far the most difficult position I've ever had. But I've never worked in a place where it is so obvious that what we are doing is worthwhile. I had the opportunity to sit and listen to our, uh, particularly our uh, ambassadors for Bethlehem University who engage with every group that comes visiting Bethlehem University. And last uh, September, I took two of our students to a conference in uh, Beauvais in France that I was asked to speak at and, and sat and listened to them. And when I uh, hear them talking about their situation and particularly the way they're dealing with it, I just sort of sit back and glow, I suppose, because here we have uh, young people who are confident, articulate, knowledgeable, reflective. And when I see that emerging from Bethlehem University and just the character that they bring to that, uh, you know, all of those difficulties that uh, are part of being there just sort of fade into the background. And uh, I just find it really difficult at times to believe that at this stage of my life I have the opportunity to be there. I just think I'm just so blessed uh, with that. Well, can you talk about some of those students and just their backgrounds and how they actually get to be at your university? Because of the restrictions of travel, we are restricted in the drawing area that we have. Prior to the wall going in, the wall started in Bethlehem. It started in Palestine in 2002, and Bethlehem it came in 2005. Prior to that, we had students coming from uh, north of Jerusalem and from Ramallah and up around that area. But since the wall has gone in, it's virtually impossible for them to come on a daily basis. We have some students from Ramallah uh, who have uh, 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 leasing or renting places in Bethlehem. Uh, in order to come to Bethlehem University. But really, our, our drawing area now is restricted to East Jerusalem, and this year we have 46% of our students are coming from East Jerusalem, so they have to come through the wall each day. And then uh, from Bethlehem and from Hebron and the villages around that, so it's a very restricted area from which they come. The ones from East Jerusalem have uh, Jerusalem ID, of course, so that means that they can can move throughout uh, Israel, but uh, when they come through the wall and come back into Israel, you know, sometimes they get hassled and and often the bus that they're on is stopped and their IDs are checked. And uh, I had uh, a, d- a discussion with one girl a few years ago now, just as she was graduating, and uh, she was from East Jerusalem, 
And I said to her, what's it like being a student at Bethlehem University and having to come from East Jerusalem each day? And she thought for a while and then she said, the worst part is coming up to the bus and at the checkpoint and wondering, what's it going to be this time? You know, is a soldier just going to wave the bus through? Is a soldier going to get on and take a look at their IDs? Is a soldier going to get on and take all their IDs and have them sit there for half an hour, an hour, an hour and a half while their IDs are being checked? Are they going to be herded off the bus and made to stand in the sun while that's being done? Are they going to be individually interrogated? Are they going to be strip-searched? You know, as she's coming in the bus up to the checkpoint, she's wondering which of those things is going to happen because all of them have happened to her at some stage. That's the hassle of coming through. And one of the things I find incredibly inspiring in, in listening to her was every day, every day she came back to Bethlehem University. And I think it's that sort of resilience, courage, determination, or whatever you like, you know, that I just find it um, inspiring. And I often wonder... If I was in their position, you know, would I have that sort of determination, that sort of courage to overcome and put up with all of the hassles that are a part of it? And are many of your students young women? 78% of them. Great. So, uh, you know, that's uh, a significant contribution we're making to help those young women to be empowered and, and some of it like the... the uh, in the presentations I do, I use little clips of interviews I've done with them. And this, this is one uh, young woman, she's just a vibrant girl, and she talks about the restrictions and how it prevents her from doing things. And then she says that, you know, I'm a 20-year-old girl, and I want to do what I want to do, and, and this is not going to stop me, and, and the restrictions are not inside me. It's a, a wonderful statement about their ability to uh, overcome and uh, rise above, you know, the immediate situation that they're confronted with. And she says, you know, that everything is uh, affected by the occupation, but you can't just sit there and blame the occupation. You know, you've got to get on and live. That sort of thing that uh, is really uh, makes, you know, I just am, and find the students amazing young people. And you've got a mixture of Christian and Muslim students? We have about 27% are Christian and the rest are Muslim. Now, that's in a country where less than 2% are Christian. And uh, I think uh, what we have aimed to do is keep about 30% of our students Christian. We're around about 27% now. And there are two reasons I have for that. One is that... Uh, it's a support for the Christian students. You know, they're not isolated uh, individuals in a sea of Muslim students. But the other side of it is that with that percentage of Christians, it's impossible for our Muslim students to be there and not engage with uh, Christian students. There are too many of them. And we have a number of our students from Hebron who have never met a Christian until they came to Bethlehem University. And I have one student, he graduated last year, and he laughs about it himself uh, when he told me the story that when he was coming to Bethlehem University, or when he had finished secondary school, he wanted to come to our Faculty of Business because it's, you know, it's the best uh, Faculty of Business in Palestine. But it was at a Christian university but he wanted to come to do business but it was a christian and he said he went back and forth because he'd heard all these strange things about christians so he's wondering what it would be like to be there and anyhow in the end the business won out 
and he came. He wasn't frightened, but he was wondering. And then he came there, and he got involved with the Christians, and then he realised they were Palestinians, just like himself. And then in the last year or so, his best friend was a Christian. And my argument would be that if we can get more Muslims with that uh, attitude and that awareness of Christians, the context within which Christians are going to be living is going to be so much more supportive of them. And one of the reasons Bethlehem University was founded was to provide an opportunity for Christians to get an education in Palestine and stay in Palestine. And so we are you know, obviously wanting to continue to do that. And what other disciplines are there apart from business? Well, we have five faculties, business, education, nursing, science and arts, and then we have an Institute of Hotel Management and Tourism. And they're undergraduates? Do you have postgraduates? Yes, we have uh, postgraduate, we have master's programs uh, in business. We have a, a master's in international cooperation and development. I'll come back to that in a minute. But one of the restrictions we have, or one of the challenges we have, is getting qualified faculty because really we aren't able to get international people because the Israelis will only give them a three-month visa. We're really looking at getting uh, qualified Palestinians, and that's a challenge. And uh, we had one instance three years ago uh, where we wanted to have a master's in biotechnology, but we didn't have the number of uh, people with doctorates to do that. And the uh, Hebron Polytechnic University didn't have them either. But we joined together, and with the two universities combining, uh, we had enough people with doctorates to be able to offer that. And so we have a combined master's program at uh, Hebron Polytechnic and at Bethlehem University. So there's those two. We also have a master's in uh, social work and a master's in tourism. And the outreach program? That is not an academic program. It's a way in which Bethlehem University is fulfilling its mission of serving the Palestinian people through education. Now, our master's programs, our undergraduate programs are certainly doing that. But the Institute of Community Partnership is involved in villages right across Palestine, from the north to the south. And we're involved in helping... uh, Villages, for example, establish community um, partnerships within uh, the uh, village uh, in, in starting up cooperatives for olive farmers, olive oil farmers, for a whole variety of, of things around managing their businesses and managing their towns. So there's a, a great variety of things that uh, we provide our own certificates. It's not recognised by anybody else, but it's, uh, it's certificates from Bethlehem University which are ways of reaching out to people to fulfil that mission of serving them through, through education. You are listening to Brother Peter Bray, who is the Vice-Chancellor of the Bethlehem University in Palestine. You spoke about the challenges facing the students just getting to school and getting getting home each day. What about the sacrifices and the situation for the children actually in their homes and being able to afford to actually send children, particularly girls, to university? If I can put it this way, it costs Bethlehem University $4,000 to have a student on campus. No student pays anywhere near half that. This is for a year, a whole year. 
because we provide support for our, all of our students. The difficulty we have is that we know there are some families and some students who have you know, very, very little finance and uh, it's a really struggle to find any contribution to those fees. But we also know there are families who are reasonably wealthy and some very wealthy. Our difficulty is deciding which is which because you know, we don't have a basis for being able to determine what, for example, what the salary is that's going into a home because we can't get access or they, you know, some of them are, are, are daily workers so they're paid in cash. And so we've set up a process through a, um, a survey, a social survey that we have as a way of trying to determine that and we don't exclude anybody from the university because of funding. Uh, we are supported by people from throughout the world actually. The main, main source of that funding comes from the United States, but we also from Europe and from England and Ireland. And, and I think uh, Australia is growing since I've been Vice-Chancellor. I've been ad advocating this uh, funding from Australia, and I think it's the fifth, fourth or fifth uh, most generous country towards Palestine, or towards Bethlehem University, rather. So as far as girls are concerned, I think the fact that we are a Catholic university, that we are a joint venture with the Vatican, uh, a lot of Muslim families feel that their daughters are safe with us. And so we're under enormous pressure, really, because, say, this past academic year, we had around 2,000 applicants for about 800, 900 positions. So most of the people who apply don't get in. We just don't have space for them. Talking to the students, do you... Sometimes hear them talking about what life is like at home. With when you talk about, we hear yeah. his stories about the harsh environment, the, yeah. their homes being invaded by IDF. Yeah, does that happen to your students as well? Well, in some cases, yes. The, the fact that Bethlehem University is in Area A, which is under complete Palestinian authority, since uh, two thousand and two. We haven't had any uh, Israeli soldiers on campus. In 2002, there was the siege of the Church of the Nativity, and uh, as a result of that, the whole town was uh, closed down and, and Bethlehem University was closed and the Israeli army uh, moved into the campus. But since then, we haven't had any, so we don't have any daily thing. You know, some of the people uh, who were there prior to Oslo, you know, talk about regular invasions of the Israelis. And see, we were closed 12 times by the Israeli military and once for three years. So, you know, that is a uh, case. Now, in terms of uh, family things, well, it, it d depends. You know, before the last uh, attack on Gaza, when those three Israeli people were killed, the Israelis used that as a an excuse to invade a lot of homes and to particularly follow up on Hamas people but they, it wasn't just restricted to Hamas families and many of our students families were invaded at that time. Uh, we have had a number of our, our male students arrested and put in jail and generally that's done at night time and yeah it's not unusual. I'd imagine that counselling must be part of your yeah. job as well. Well we have uh, yeah we have counsellors at Bethlehem University but uh, probably not enough but I find the students are very resilient and, um, you know, they, 
uh, I'd say in many cases take it in their stride. Uh, one of the difficulties with uh, young men who, who go to jail is that often after they're released they don't come back to university so we, we sort of lose contact with them that way. Do you follow up on your former students to see how they're getting on, what well, they're achieving? We are attempting to do that now, but uh, we, we began a, an alumni office a few years ago since I've been there. This is my ninth year there, so probably six, seven years back. Prior to that, we didn't, and uh, I've spoken to uh, Brother Neil uh, about it. He's been there about 29 years now. And he was the uh, Vice President for Academic Affairs for about 11 years, I think. And he was saying during all that time, there was only one semester where they did what they'd planned. And all of the other ones were interrupted for a whole variety of reasons. So his comment was that the, the focus was on getting through the semester, getting through the academic year getting the exams done, getting results and getting at graduation, all that sort of thing. And once the group had finished, the focus was on getting through the next semester. And uh, really, uh, once students had gone, because you know they were short-staffed and they were focusing on uh, getting through the semester because of the interruptions they'd had, you know, once students had left, there wasn't a, a great deal of follow-up. So we're trying to address that now, but it's it's difficult because, you know, a number of the students have, uh, you know, their homes have moved from home and many or most of them have got married, particularly the girls, and it's very difficult, therefore, to, to trace them. So of the, we have got about 16,000 uh, graduates and probably we're getting up to around about the 5,000 that we've, we're actually getting in contact with. But uh, with the uh, Ministry of Higher Education, who is working with all of the uh, Palestinian universities, they have a program that they've given to us uh, as a way of, of more effectively uh, following up on those. With all those uncertainties that you've just spoken about during the semester or the, the school yeah. year, is it difficult to keep staff? Not really, because, see, one of, one of the problems is that you know, the unemployment, say, in Bethlehem is around 23%. For people under 26, it's up in the 40%. People leave, they they really need to make sure they've got a job to go to. And so, particularly for uh, staff, faculty have more opportunities, but for staff, you know, it's very, very stable because, you know, we are the biggest employer in Bethlehem. And to have a job at Bethlehem University is a secure position. So, you know, that's one of the factors that is, is leading to a fairly stable staff and, and generally a stable faculty. When we have vacancies, there are difficulties in filling it, though. Just looking at the fact that students go through all the checkpoints and all the harassment, I'd imagine the staff suffer yeah, the same, same thing. thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Visitors from overseas... Where do they come from? To Bethlehem University, probably the biggest group come from the United States, but many groups from Europe, from England. Uh, we're getting an increasing number of groups from Australia and New Zealand, but we're beginning to get groups from the Philippines and from Asia. We've had a number of groups come from Korea. So, you know, sort of international, really, and we are happy to accept any group that comes. See, last year we probably had between three and 4,000 visitors 
they come in, in groups of, uh, it's probably, the average would probably be a, a, about 50, uh, about a busload or two busloads. And where do you put them up? Oh, we, we don't house them. They just come and visit us. Okay. We don't have any facilities for, at present. Uh, back in 2012, we purchased an abandoned hospital. It had been abandoned since 1994. It cost us $13 million to purchase it. And then we've been negotiating with the Saudi Fund for Development, and they have just given us $10 million to develop it into a teaching hotel, a teaching restaurant, and to move our Institute of Hotel Management down there. And what are the international visitors looking for when they come? Mainly on pilgrimage, so they're coming to the Holy Land. Some people uh, I've spoken to have said when they've seen their itinerary, and, you know, they go to uh, the Church of the Nativity, the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, they go to Galilee and whatever. And then they see Bethlehem University and they want to, what are we doing at Bethlehem University on a pilgrimage? And so many of them have said when they come and engage with our students, it's really been the highlight of their time in, in the Holy Land because it, it means they've got an opportunity uh, to talk to some real Palestinians, some young people who are vibrantly alive and, and wanting to stay in Palestine. And I think that, you know, that whole sense of, you know, these are, are really young people with a mission, with a, a real sense of uh, what it means to be in Palestine, in this holy land. So there is a sense uh, of these visitors being greatly enriched by that. And the other thing is, uh, every opportunity I get, I don't speak to every group, but to the groups I do, I thank them for coming because, uh, you know, our students are very savvy as far as international news is concerned and it's very easy for them to get the impression that they're the problem. They're the reason there's all these ha this hassle in, in Palestine because if they listen to the international news, then, you know, the Palestinians are the, the problem. So... One of the issues is that uh, when these visitors come, the impression our students have that nobody wants to have anything to do with them, the lie is given to that by these people being there. And I think that's an, a really important part of keeping hope alive there. I think that's one of our biggest challenges. And uh, when I've thought about hope, you know, I see it differently, uh, something different from optimism. Because when the Palestinians look back over the last 60 or so years, there's very, very little that leads them to be optimistic. So hope, I think, has to do with people knowing that there are people outside of their situation who are standing in solidarity with them, who understand what they're going through. And I think to have visitors come and engage with our students, it gives hope to them. Just finally, Peter, the, the current political situation both in Israel and the US it must be very worrying yeah it's well the unpredictability of it is is a concern you know Mr Trump in the election uh, in the lead up to the election uh, promised that the day the, within minutes of him being uh, made president that he would move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem fortunately some people seem to have got to him and um he uh, hasn't done that and said there's a need to, to explore it some more. I think that would be a, a very, very un unwise and very unfortunate move if he did that. 
The other thing is the, the expansion of the settlements and the possibility of new settlements. The settlers have been emboldened by his, his uh, uh, presidency already. And, uh, you know, you've got people like Bennett uh, talking about taking over the whole of the West Bank. And, yeah, so all of that leads to a lot of uncertainty. And, um, yeah, it is a concern. But I think, uh, you know, what we as Bethlehem University are doing is very much tied into what I'd say is the mission of the church. I think Father David Newhouse, one of the priests in, in Jerusalem, is a personal friend and a great, just a great priest. He talks about the fact that as Christians, we don't have any power. We don't really have any influence. But we have two things that are crucial. It's the way we talk, the words that we use, and the institutions that we have. And uh, the way we talk about the situation there, coming from a Christian perspective, there are certain words we don't use. For example, we don't use the word enemy, we don't use hate, we don't use revenge, there's a whole range of things which are contrary to the mission uh, of the church and to the, uh, the mission that Jesus was there to, to spread. So it's how we talk about it that's really important, that we're coming out of an aspect of love, not of hate or of revenge. The second thing is the institutions we have, like our schools, our university, uh, the hospitals, the social uh, services that we have. That seems to me to be uh, a way in which we are in incarnating, as it were, the words that we use, the words that we convey the gospel message. For example, in our schools, everybody is welcome. In our hospitals, everybody is treated. In our social services, everybody's listened to. And it's that everybody thing uh, that is really, I think, a, a very important part of the, the mission of the church. And, and rather than uh, circling the wagons, as it were, and building walls around us and separating us, ourselves out, you know, I think the mission, the mission of the church is to pull down walls, to go out to those people who are out there. It doesn't mean we're... We are uh, unaware of the dangers or that, uh, you know, people aren't afraid. But I think uh, we have to join together with Muslims, the moderate Muslims, and find a way of supporting one another in bringing about a society where fear is not the dominant factor, where ignorance is not dominant. And I think what Bethlehem University is doing is helping to create that group of people that is going to create the new Palestine. Thanks so much. Okay. And that was Brother Peter Bray, who's the Vice Chancellor of the Bethlehem University in Palestine. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Well, that's all I have for today. 
Thanks for listening. It's been a great program. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. I'm not quite sure whether Mr Kevin Healy will be on the program next week or not because um, he's got a little holiday coming up for a week and I'm not sure whether Tuesday is part of that holiday or not. But anyway, we will survive whether he's there or not. So I'll say goodbye now and I'll be back next Tuesday at 4. Bye for now.